Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Fans, if you're into sports betting, BetOnline is where you should go to win money today. Whether it's live bets during games or futures for who you think's going to win the championship, BetOnline has all the latest odds, news, and information for all of your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next big game, head on over to BetOnline and start playing today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Welcome again, gang. Mark Barry and I want to thank you for supporting the podcast. Hope you'll keep rating and reviewing us. And Preston Wilson is our guest on this episode. And Mark, I really want to ask folks, bear with us for a couple of minutes into this interview. We had a little technical difficulty, but we got it ironed out. And he's a great storyteller. You know what, Mike? The beauty of it is you have teammates in this fraternity of baseball is so great, but they put a smile on your face. That's exactly what Preston Wilson is. Unbelievable teammate, but also, Mike, he went through six teams in 10 years. But the culmination was a beautiful moment for him individually, a World Series championship with the St. Louis Cardinals. Preston, great to have you with us, man. We look back at a 10-year career with six different clubs. I'm sure you have a lot of wonderful memories, but when you think about it, is there a signature moment to your time in Major League Baseball? Yeah, I, I would have to say the one moment that stands out as far as a personal signature moment would be the uh, what I accomplished hitting 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases in a season. That to me was uh, when I found out that I was only the 36th person to ever do it. I had no idea how rare it was. I knew that it was a big thing, but I didn't know how rare that feat was. And you look at Miguel Cabrera, who just hit 500 home runs, and he's only the 28th. So like you're looking at how rare those major feats are in the game. And, uh, you know, it's definitely a signature moment for me. Yeah, and you think about it, Preston. I, I mean, when, when you were getting to that moment, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of surrounding, whether it's media, teammates, they're always talking about it. Uh, how did you deal with that scenario? Because there is pressure to it, but there's also that realization of, man, I, like, that's what I expected myself to do. But, man, when you do it at the big league level, it has to be extra special. Yeah, I, I, I really think with the media stuff that went on around it, it was more or less like the pre-game kind of stuff. But for me, once the game got going, it was more or less focusing on the at-bat. You know, I think it's different than if you have like a hitting streak going or something like that, mm-hmm. where it has to happen that day. You know, I still had some time left in the season. There was a few weeks I had left to, for the world. Yeah, a few weeks I had left for me to do it. So it wasn't like I was at the end. Or, you know, I had like the very next day where the season was going to end. So I had time to do it. It was just more or less me working and make sure I got a pitch to do that at bat. Really, being in September when you're tired and you're playing center field, I was with the Marlins at the time, and we didn't have the greatest pitching staff, so my legs were kind of shot at that point. It's really, really just a thing of going out there and focusing and getting that at bat and trying to make sure nothing else gets in the way of that. You know what, Preston? I remember in 1998, teammate of mine, uh, who you know, Greg Vaughn, uh, one of my favorites, he waited till his last at bat to get number 50, uh, 50 home runs, which... He was waiting, like you said. He had a two-week period where he's sitting on 49, and all of a sudden his last at bat, we're all, I mean, we're, we wanted to hit it for him. I mean, it was one of those things. And it goes over the left field wall, but the jubilation of his teammates and, and that accomplishment. Do you remember that moment when you realized, man, I, I got 30-30, and I can really take it all in? And how did your teammates handle that? 
you know, my teammates are great. I remember that moment. I remember, we were actually playing against Colorado at the time. I was with the Marlins, and it was like a, like a rainy kind of open on night. And uh, I just remember getting a pitch, driving it into the right center, hitting it in the bullpen. I'm jogging around the base, and I'm like, it actually happened. So I get in the dugout. All my all my teammates, you know, they're cheering for me, and you know, we're high fiving and clapping hands. And you know, I just feel like this wave of emotions come over me. So I just kind of go down in the dugout. You know, there's always a bathroom right by the dugout. You know, how big dugouts are. There's always a bathroom right behind the dugout. And I went in there and I actually cried. You know, because the one thing that I really thought was missing from that moment was my family. Like my dad wasn't there, my mom wasn't there, my sisters didn't get to see it. So it was like it was a, a jubilant moment, but it was also like a little bittersweet because like. I didn't have my family there to kind of share it with. Yeah. When you when you finally did have that conversation with family, was it another second wave of emotion, or by then was it just more uh, walking through what had happened? What was that like? No, it was it was very emotional because you you know my mom and my dad you know they kind of been with me this whole journey you know all the stuff they had to put up with making sure I had you know equipment to play making sure I got to practice and games on time. You know, they all shared in that. My dad, uh, you know, being a, a player before him, uh, you know, trying not to be too hands-on and trying not to be too, uh, you know, you know how parents can be too much overbearing over their, over their kids. He had to really kind of stand back from that. So once we got that, you know, that emotion out of the way, then, 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 then the joy kicked in. Of, you know, we did this and you look at how rare it was. And it was, it was an amazing moment, yeah. With you uh, mentioning that um, you're, you're, dad in in Mookie and I think a lot of baseball fans certainly know Mookie Wilson from his time with the Mets with that was there pressure to play at this level growing up was that the expectation in your house what was it like for you uh, thank God we were totally different types of players you know uh, I think that really kind of made it easy for me I was a power player I was a power hitter he was a more speed base running you know kind of guy table setter if we played on the same team he would be the guy that I'd drive in you know, so it wasn't as much pressure to say, like, if I was a pitcher, my dad was a pitcher. We were totally ty- different types of players, and I think that made it easier to kind of separate us as far as talents. And, uh, the assumption, too, Preston, is probably, hey, uh, his dad's a, a former big leaguer. Um, he's just going to follow in his footsteps. How did you deal with that pressure? I was just trying to be myself, you know, just not trying to be him. You know, I, I remember uh, when the first went to the Mets and I had our first spring training, they gave me number two. And I'm like, nah, that's a little too close. And I, number one, number two, I'm like, nah, nah. And then they gave me Dallas Strawberries. And I'm like, no, I, I can't throw that number. You know, it's like strawberry. Like, am I going to walk into New York if I actually make it to the big leagues? We're number 18. I'm like, oh, here's the next number. No, I'm not doing that. So I ended up taking my high school number, which was 11, which I guess my dad was when I was number 11 uh, when I went to the Mets. So that kind of you know, worked out where it wasn't like I was trying to be him. And, and really, our games were different. When I first started, I, I was an infielder. I just ended up in center field. You know, I was drafted as a third baseman. I played shortstop in high school. So, you know, it kind of evolved into us having more in common at the big league level than before. But when I first started out in my leagues, I was an infielder. Was it so odd? You was me, it... You, you remember me taking those infield balls? <laughs> oh, <know>? yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the, sh- the, the shortstop never c- gets out of you, right? It, it never gets never out of you. <laughs> Sometimes a guy will play himself into another position, right? Becomes I think a, that happened to me at the third base. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like he's thinking about way too much out there. 
Let's put him in the outfield so he doesn't have to worry about picking hops or whatever. And just let him get going. Well, they did, they did the right thing if that was a, if it took any convincing at all. Was it coincidence that you were taken first uh, by the Mets in 1992, given the fact that, that Pop had played for, for the Mets? How'd that work out? No idea. I didn't even know the Mets were scouting me. I always thought I was going to get taken by the Reds. They showed the most interest. They were the most busy as far as scouting me and being a parent. Uh, the Expos were around a lot. Uh, but other than that, I, I rarely saw a Mets to scout. And if I did, they never announced themselves as a Mets scout. So when I got drafted by the Mets, I was absolutely just kind of thrown off because it was, I mean, it was a great thing because I grew up in Shea Stadium, but I definitely had no idea that team would uh, be the team to draft me. With the progression of things for you, I mean, you come out of high school, um, you work your way through the system, and you get that call up in May of 1998. Who told you about it? How'd you find out? Give us the fun backstory behind that. Well, uh, the, my, my manager at the time uh, told me about it. I'm sitting there, and uh, I think Rick Dempsey was the manager at, at, at AAA at the time. And uh, just kind of after a game, get called up and I'm like what do you mean I'm getting called because that, that wasn't even on my mind they're like yeah uh, Fonzo's uh, got injured so you're going to the big leagues my dad didn't even know and because at one point I was one of the quote unquote untouchables in the systems every minor league team has their guys that we're not trading no matter what yeah. so when Mike Piazza comes into the equation no matter what goes out of the window <laughs> so I, I became touchable real quick they touched me well and sent me on my way <laughs> <laughs> hey, before they send you on your way, though, you make that debut. I, I think uh, all our listeners kind of assume, hey, you've been in a big league clubhouse before. Um, but, man, when you get the news and you're going up officially for the first time, take us into that thought process and you walking into that locker room and finally seeing your name on that jersey and that Mets jersey. That had to be extra special. Well, it was weird. It was almost like there was like a like a snap in the, you know, time continuum as far as me walking into that stadium hundreds of times as a child with my dad, with my mom coming before the game starts. And then now I'm walking into Shea Stadium from the parking lot, through the, through the walkway, how everybody goes through there, down that tunnel. And I bypass the, the bullpen where I used to see people there all the time. I bypass the family room where I used to wait for my dad. Me and my mom used to wait for my dad. At, and then I get to the Mets locker room and I get to go in. And I'm not just waiting there, waiting for my dad to come out. And I get in there and I see my name on the lock. And I'm like, this is the craziest thing ever. Like, this is actually happening, you know? And then I go from that to walking down the tunnel to the tunnel from the locker room to the field that I used to go down when they would have a father's day or kids day, where the kids would actually get to play on that field. And now I'm actually in a real best uniform and not a kid's uniform. So it was like this parallel universe that was happening at the same time. And I walk out, out of the dugout. And I see that big, you know, the big uh, apple out there in center field that was there forever. I see the uh, the bleachers out in left field that I used to watch George Foster hit home runs over or Dave Kingman or Kevin Mitchell, you know. Uh, and I stand out there and I see those ro the rolling kind of, because everybody knows Shea Stadium was not flat in outfield. It had like these rolling <laughs> little hills. That it's not flat. And I look out there and I'm like, I'm going to play it tonight. And then, of course, the big the big scoreboard that everybody knows that, you know, it's kind of like besides the Apple and Shea Stadium, that big scoreboard was kind of ahead of its time as far as massive scoreboards. And uh, New York had one. So just seeing that was really a surreal moment. Man. 
Well, Press, I think the interesting aspect is when you get your first start and you go out there and uh, you're against the St. Louis Cardinals. Donovan Osborne's on the mound. Take us through that first at bat and, and also uh, getting your first hit in the big leagues. From what seems like a blur, a blur, I'll see what I can kind of pull out of it. I remember getting, getting there and Tony saying, you're hot, you know, you're, you're so keep staying hot. I'm going to put you up early in the lineup, get this thing going. Lefty starting, I always hit lefties well. Uh, so I felt good about that. And then, you know, you look at your pregame report, you see Donovan Osborne, curveball, you know, doesn't like to go in too much. You've you got all that stuff in your head. But when you get in the box, it's different because now you're actually in the box and you're walking up there where you're where my dad used to play. And I'm looking out the Big Apple and all of that, all the stuff that makes it Shea Stadium, the place that I grew up in. So I get in the box, take a deep breath, trying to slow everything down, trying not to get too over amped or whatever, because, you know, I'm, I'm looking for something good to hit early. I'm, I'm trying to get on a fastball. If he makes a mistake, I'm not waiting around for the nasty stuff to get late in the count, the two strike pitches. So get in there. Looking out, Donovan Osborne goes under his wine but and I think I might have swung before he threw it, but it was right there, and I saw it really good, and I took a swing that I really thought this might be the one to start off my career with a home run. I mean, I just seeing it, I remember the laces and all. It's up that I did not really square it up. It was one of those dribblers up the third baseline that was about maybe 40 feet or so, probably in the right place where the third baseman and first baseman couldn't get it. Either way, I was running really well, though. I got, to, you know, when you're running, you don't hear anything. That's how fast <laughs> I was running swings. <laughs> I was getting after it, and I get down the line, and I realized there's no play. I turn around after I touch the bag, you know, got to cool off the brakes a little bit because I was flying, you know, kind of, Got yeah. a little velocity behind me. Come back, shake my dad's hand. And, like, that was a big deal because getting your first big league hit and your dad's there to shake your hand, it's like something you do in the Little League, not in the major leagues. And uh, all of a sudden, then it's like, snap out of it because you got to start to get the science. You know, so it was one of those moments that happened. And, oh, yeah, I saw the ball rolling from my first base hit. As I get back, I'm kind of looking. I see the ball rolling into the dugout, which is the last time I saw that ball. Wow. You know what? If you know baseball and you know the stories, there was a little issue with the clubhouse guy at the Mets and uh, he's cooling his heels for a while, but <laughs> that's a whole other story. Let's get back to this. Oh, no, that's the story I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking back at the uh, at the field and all of a sudden, I got to get the sides. Now I got to get back to being in the moment. So it was amazing to get my first big league hit in Shea Stadium, wearing that home Mets uniform. My dad's there on first. Uh, ended up being against the team that I would close out my career against in the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, it was just a moment that, that I would hope that I never lose uh, yeah, because you, it's, it's, it's amazing. You're never going to lose that, that moment. That, that's the beauty of this podcast, hearing those first and understanding the, the moment. And also, by the way, shaking your dad's hand. That, that is so cool to understand that, that I could get my first major league hit and I could shake my dad's hand in the same moment uh, and they're not coming out of the stands. Um, for our listeners to know, uh, your middle name was aggressive early in the count. And, and that's what was beautiful. You, you sustained that your whole career. Um, that's what I absolutely love because it, you had a purpose going into that and it even started with your first hit. The thing that I want to know, Preston, though, that I think is amazing is that you spent so many times at Shea Stadium watching from the stands. And that particular night, you run out to the outfield and you get to see it from a totally different lens. What was that like for you? Because uh, for me, that that's a cool moment. 
How did you take all of that in? Well, it's amazing because as, as the home team, you're on defense first. Mm -hmm. So I wanted, to, I wanted to get out there. You know, I, I always watch the team to see, and I would ask, like, is there a certain person who goes out on the field first? Because I didn't want to expect that every team has, or some, some teams have a guy that's kind of like the leader that always takes the field first. So I asked, and, you know, it's like, no, we just, we go out at the same time unless the pitcher says something up. So I wanted to kind of get out there. So I waited until like one or two people touched the dirt in front of the dugout, <laughs> and then I go. Because I wanted to get out there and take it all in and look and, uh, you know, see the apple out there in center field, see the big scoreboard that I used to watch strawberry crush balls off of, you know. And then as I'm running out there, I'm seeing these wavy hills because, you know, Shea Stadium was kind of a marsh ground, and everybody who played out there know that it wasn't exactly even. It's like a little wavy yeah. ground out there. So that's what it was characterized. This is that I believe that only Shea Stadium had, you mm -hmm. know, and then as I'm running out there, I'm thinking, really, Mays played on this field. Like, I know my dad played there, but I'm actually standing in the same ground and not just in some kind of fan kind of way or kids day with the parents kind of day. Like, I'm in this game. I'm playing on the field today, the same place where Willie Mays used to play. And that was it just kind of a snap back. Like, I'm like, that doesn't happen. Like, these things that are happening in my life right now are beyond outrageous like it's, it's it's silly it really is to say that i got to play in the same home ballpark as my dad i got to play stand in the position where willie mays played and my dad played and then as i'm turning around and looking back there i'm remembering where i was sitting when the world series happened and my dad hit the ball through buckner's legs where my family would always sit where my mom was sitting when we used to go and watch the mets games the hagen stand where i used to try to flirt <laughs> with the girls when i was a kid <laughs> right there behind the home plate that was off to my left when i'm looking in like all of those things are in my mind and happening and then all of a sudden the pitchers warm-ups are done and now i gotta be a center fielder again and not be a spectator yeah what was it like in, in terms of uh, being integrated into that dugout? Because, you know, like you had brought up being in Little League, you're going, oh, that's the coach's kid. Do the players at a big league level treat you differently? Like, oh, he's going to go back to dad, and that's going to get back to Bobby Valentine, the manager. But what was that? What's the dynamic like? I was pretty low-key, so I really didn't, I wasn't worried about getting in any type of trouble. I mean, I never got any type of trouble in my career. It was more or less just making sure that they saw me and then see me as Mookie's son. And, uh, you know, I think I, I have a pretty big personality. So I think that took care of it. My dad is a great guy. He's a nice guy, but his personality is as big as mine. So I think right away, once I got to know the team and they started to know me, they knew that even from spring training that he's his son, but he's not a carbon copy of his dad. And I think that helped that our personalities were a little bit different. But, uh, you know, I think it was also something where when you get there, you realize there's so many people that used to work in that stadium that were still there. Some of the ushers were still there. Some of the security guards were still there. Um, you know, I, I saw people that would go there, you know, guys that were cops when I was a kid were there doing security for the ballpark. And it's, you know, 20, 30 years later. It was amazing to see some of those people that saw me as an eight-year-old kid in that stadium now saw me as a 20-plus-something-year-old kid to them, and I'm actually playing on the field. So that was different coming back to Shea Stadium. Yeah, and you know what, Preston, I, I think it's, it's fascinating that uh, there's some stadiums like that, and you said you finished with St. Louis, which we'll get to that uh, later on. But when you have the same security people, uh, the same ushers, the people uh, outside the locker room, there's that connection that is so cool, and you already established that, so you've taken all that out. Uh, we talked about your first hit. Uh, you had 189 home runs in your career. What was the first like? The first one was off actually a dear friend of mine, Javi Vasquez. Um, you know, I've known him from the minor leagues because when you're in the Mets, you play the, the Expos so much because they were right there in Palm Beach at the time. So you had the Mets in St. Lucie and the Braves in the Expos uh, 
uh, down over there in Palm Beach. So we used to play them all the time. Uh, so got to know him pretty well. And uh, so I'm, it's like September. I ended up getting like a, a call up with the Marlins uh, later that same year uh, as I got my first big league hit. And uh, I had to wait because uh, Todd Dunwoody was their, their prospect. He was their guy that they were waiting to see a flurry. So I didn't really get to play that much. I just had to play when I could. Uh, and for some reason, I got to start against a right-handed pitcher. Um, and it was Javi Vasquez who had, I don't know if most people remember it, if you're a real baseball fan, Javi Vasquez had the filthiest right-handed changeup in the game at the time. Unbelievable, yeah. It was, it, was, it was nasty. It looked just like his fastball. It was always down. It just disappeared. Uh, so battling through that, I remember uh, getting, uh, getting a fastball, like out over the plate, hit it right center out of, uh, out of Pro Player Stadium at the time, which was, you didn't hit many out of Pro Player that way. Right. And I think, I think not only did that get uh, the league's attention, I think it got the Marlins' attention as far as my power all over the ballpark. Uh, and I did so well that day, I went one for two with a walk or something like that, that I didn't even start the next day. <laughs> 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 That's how much I got there, I. They wanted to take it easy on the league, Preston. I need to take a day off. (laughs) They were trying to take it easy on the league, my friend. They don't want want too much too soon from you. Hey, uh, spin the clock back a little bit for me because uh, you had mentioned, you know, that you were untouchable in the Mets organization. Then Then you were touched eight games into your big league career. They're like, yeah, he's good. He's good enough to get us. That Mike Piazza guy, he's pretty good, too. Uh, How'd that trade go down? And what do you remember about the conversation between not only the front office, but I would imagine then your dad? Um, Well, the trade went down rather quickly. I think as soon as the Mets um, found out that they were going to move him or possibly move Piazza to Dodgers at that time, that they were going to move Piazza, I think they really tried to put together the best package they could um, because they needed a catcher that could hit. They they needed another power bat in the lineup. And uh, it turned out to be a great move for him. Uh, but as far as conversations between my dad, we were both shocked because that was, even though my dad was working with the organization, organization at the time, I think they didn't want to tell him beforehand yeah. because they had always told him, look, if we, if we do anything, we'll tell you. So the last thing that he heard was I was untouchable. And then the next thing he heard was I was going, yeah, yes, I was going to be with the Marlins, which was, uh, it was really weird. And uh, even more so than at the big league level, at the minor league level, because at that time we were playing the Charlotte Knights at the time. I was with the Norfolk Tides. We were playing the Charlotte Knights in Charlotte. So the first night of that series, I was a Norfolk Tide playing against the Charlotte Knights. The next two nights of that series, I was a Charlotte Knight playing against wow. the Norfolk Tide, which was the Mets. So I switched. I, I kept stayed in the same stadium, switched uniforms, and I've been tormenting the Mets ever since then. I think I had two home runs the next two games against them. Yeah. The, the, the beauty of uh, baseball when you're traded and all you got to oh. do is shift the locker rooms, man. Isn't yeah. that, isn't that a beauty? Um, I, I'm sure your dad felt uh, very odd. It probably angered him. Who knows the, the emotional part of it until he saw Mike Piazza and he hit his, one of his bullets to right field probably yeah. off the, yeah. off the, uh, the scoreboard uh, that probably changed things, but uh, you evolve uh, Preston and, and you go to the Marlins um, was it difficult for you to change venues? Because that is an adjustment. And it, how did you handle the trade aspect in getting your first opportunity with the Marlins in the big leagues? Well, I mean, the venue as far as the stadiums, that didn't bother me. I got, I never worried about the stadium. I felt like I could hit the ball out of any stadium. It was just mm-hmm. a matter of getting there and getting comfortable with the people. Now the people were different because uh, 
in, in essence, you're a bastard. You're the kid that comes over that you're not the, you're not a child of this organization. Right. You're you're adopted. You're 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 from somewhere else, and you got to prove yourself. Even though they traded for you this high price piece, you still have to prove yourself and get to know all these coaches and people in the organization because they have prospects in that organization that they've spent years with. They're connected emotionally to these people. So to think that just because you're as good or better than them that you're going to get to play right away, you really got to learn that lesson. Hey, no, these people have invested time in these players that are here. They drafted them. They were here when they started. Those players have been with the organization from the beginning. So we had to wait. I had to wait until my talent actually became undeniable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, just in spring training, I would ask, uh, what do I need to do to make this team? You know, I, I remember asking, they said, well, first, you know, you got to hit lefties. And that was because Todd Dunwoody, who was their prospect that they were pushing to be the next guy in center field, was a left-handed hitter. So if he was having trouble with lefties, I had to be able to hit lefties. Okay, so I go out and hit almost 400 that year in spring training off the lefties. You know, so it was like that. It was always trying to figure out what I needed to do. And uh, I think the best thing I ever did was ask those questions because then at the end of it, I never felt like I was treated wrongly or poorly because I knew what the answers they gave me. Now, if they gave me the answers and I did it and it didn't work out, then now I say, well, you guys lied to me. But no, I asked the questions. They gave me an honest answer and I made sure I did those things. So that was the process. With Jim Leland there, that first year you went over there in 98, and I think it was John Bowles, right, the next year yeah, uh, right. in Florida. Was Jim Leland uh, influential in that transition? Or give me give me a good story about the way he uh, took you in or perhaps kept you out. What was it like? Well, for the first, I'd say for the first week or two, Jim Leland ignored me, which is great. I mean, he's, he's a better manager. He doesn't have time for a kid that doesn't know anything about baseball at the major leagues. I got that. I, 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 I had no problem with that. My thing was just work hard. And when I got a chance, play well. That was it. You know, because once you do that, everything else kind of goes by the wayside. And let's, let's be honest. Leland had a lot of uh, guys that he was loyal to. He brought over guys uh, like John Wayner, Tangelosi, guys that had played for him in Pittsburgh, guys that he was either trying to help get their 10 years in or doing them a favor, giving them a big league time. I got that. You know, but I, I think the more I played, the more I, you know, showed my abilities, whether it be on defense, at the plate, or on the bases, you know, it, it began to show that I was a threat in all phases of the game. So when Bowles came in the second year, you know, it was one of those things where I had to prove that I could do it consistently. And uh, what a lot of people don't remember is I didn't get the starting job out of spring training. Dunwoody was still the starting center, uh, center fielder until like yeah. uh, May sometime. So it took until May, late May. And uh, what did it was there was a, uh, a road trip that we were on and we're playing against the Dodgers. And they sent me in the pinch hit against Chan Ho Park. And I hit a three-run homer to put us up, like in the seventh, eighth, seventh inning or so against Chan Ho Park. And that was the last day I was not a starter in the big leagues. So I had to earn it. It took a while. You know, it wasn't like I walked in and, and the Marlins was like, okay, well, you're out center fielder now. No, it, it took a while. It took uh, some convincing. Uh, and it took my play to become undeniable for them to let the prospect that they had in mind, the guy that they drafted highly, uh, kind of fade out of picture and realize that he wasn't going to be their guy. Preston, Preston, it's interesting because uh, I think every big leaguer um, plays, and I, I think uh, our listeners need to understand too, it comes a time where you realize, uh, and it's not the confidence, because being around you, everyone knew you were confident about your abilities. But there's a difference here. You're in another organization, and you're playing, but you get that time to be that starter. Did it take a little more time to realize, you know what, I'm here for good? I mean, this is something that I realize now. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big leaguer, and I'm an everyday guy because that's something that that has to be established, doesn't it? 
Yes. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, we, even when, when you come to the big leagues, first, you're right. You have to say, do I belong in the big leagues? And once I got, you know, a few at bats or whatever, no matter what the numbers were, I felt like I can do this. I can handle this. Um, there's always going to be guys that, that just get you. But for the most part, I felt like I belong here, you know, and then you go from, do I belong here to do I deserve to be out there every day? And, uh, just in my mind, I'm thinking about, well, I've been working on my defense, you know, there's been no complaints about my defense. I've been good on the bases. I haven't made any mental errors. Uh, yes, some, some pitchers get me, some don't, some pitchers I get, some guys I don't, but overall, I feel like I'm more of an asset uh, than a liability when I'm at the plate. Uh, and being there with the with the just the fear that I that pitchers may have of the power can actually help the guy in front of me if I'm a little bit more consistent. So once I started working myself into lineup and then getting a chance and making uh, the most out of those opportunities, I start yes, I'm an everyday big league player and I should be here. Uh, there's an aspect too that I think we we like to bring in, in shifting gears a little bit. Um, you grew up around the game. You had your stars. You loved uh, watching certain players, I'm sure, including your dad. But the cool thing about being a rookie is you start getting your rookie card. You see your rookie card. You start realizing it. Uh, did you collect cards when you were younger? And yeah, uh, when, you, yeah. when you when you first saw that rookie card, what was that like for you? It was it was it was like well one of one of my first cards I remember was the ugliest swing you could ever imagine. And it, it took a picture like out of instruction league of spring training and then put it on my, oh, it was just, it was hideous. Like I'm, I'm clearly out front. There's clearly no contact made. My face is all screwed up. Cause I'm like, it's, it's, it's just a mess. And then I, then I got one that was a good card. And I'm like, wow, okay. I got a decent card now. Like this is the card that I used to sit you know, in my room and look at and then flip over the back and see what the stats were and see what they did and then turn it back over, you know, check out the uniform, all that stuff. So it was, it was, a, it was a moment that when you look back at it, it's kind of sweet, you know, you're like, I got a big league card and that's me on the card. It's not anyone else. Like I earned this. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, buddy, uh, just so you know, you talk about your bad swing. Well, one of my cards, they had me bunting. Uh, as a pinch hitter, they had me bunting. Uh, I, I, that was so disappointing. It's like, come on, can you please just maybe get my stance? Or yeah. <laughs> you don't have any choices of the matter. So I, I totally understand that. Who was your favorite card uh, when you when you were collecting? Who was your favorite card growing up? Oscar Gamble with that big afro. Oh. Absolutely, Oscar Gamble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were some other ones that I liked that came after him. You know, I like uh, Strawberry Always Good. And um, I like the old Reds, like Johnny Bench and those guys. Mike Schmidt was a big one for me because it, well, I lived in Jersey, not too mm -hmm. far from Philly when my dad played with the Mets. So that was a big one for me. I loved all the Phillies guys, too. Yeah. <laughs> that Oscar Gamble picture is in my head right now. That was it's forever. <laughs> unbelievable. That was the best. You're right. That one's the best. Hey, you know what? Looking behind you right now, which is really cool for uh, those of you listening to us, we're also available on uh, YouTube through Believe. But I'm looking behind you. I see the bat uh, in frame there with your Cardinals jersey. Your bat compared to Pop's bat, I'm going to imagine we're a little bit different in model. But I know you guys all get married to a certain style in particular, uh, bat model. So what'd you use? Uh, tell me how you get reached that decision. Well, when I was with the Marlins, I used a big bat uh, because I, I was playing in Marlins Park. So I had to have something that when I connected, it was actually uh, the biggest bat I used was a 35-34. And I know Pop Starzo used a 36-36 or something like that. But wow. that was the biggest bat I used. When I went to the Marlins, I dropped down to 34-33. And then uh, after I had a couple of injuries, um, 
with one was when I ran into the wall in Wrigley in like an extra inning game. I don't know, Sweeney, if you remember that one. Yeah, but, uh, I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I peeled myself off the wall and left one of those stickers like with your kids where you just put the, the figure into the stadium. You're a fat head up there. Off the wall. So after that, I had, a, I had a wrist injury and I dropped down to 31. But most of my career was between 32, 33 ounces uh, with 34, 34 and a half inches. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because I, I, I think, obviously, we're, think, we're talking Mets. I think a one dog, uh, Lance Johnson, uh, the, one of the smallest guys in the batter's box. And I, with all due respect, absolutely loved him. But his bat looked like it was bigger than him. I mean, it, it was, it was so, yeah. it was so big, and he could handle it, and it was just really an option. Uh, how did you decide on the model of the bat, and did you stay with it? I, I know you changed ounces, but did you stay with a similar model for your career? Yeah, the, the model stayed similar. I like I like the handle. I was a little bit thinner because I wanted more whip. That's you know power hitters like that little thinner handle get the bat through the zone. But between George Foster, a guy who played in the seventies, and he used a big bat, um, it was thin but it was heavy. Um, one dog who when I came to the Mets, he was one of my mentors. He was a center fielder. Um, my first big league spring training. Uh, and uh, you know talking to him, and it was really just I wasn't afraid of the size of the bat. Because it's you can be late with a thirty ounce bat, and I have mm -hmm. been late with a with a light bat. It's about if you get ready on time, none of that matters. But the difference is when you do connect, the ball is going to go further. You're going to get get more distance. And uh, I think I just kind of took that with me. And I remember one year, uh, late in the season, um, this might have been a year I ended up hitting thirty home runs late in the season uh, with the Marlins. I think I was like that was my thirty thirty with the Marlins. I um, was struggling a little bit because I was tired playing in that heat in Miami. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, look, I, I have all respect for the pitchers that I played with at the time, but I have to be honest, their numbers weren't very good. Yeah. So when you're playing in that heat and you're running gap to gap every time, because they weren't, you know, they weren't like when you play the Braves and they hit location and Andre Jones never has to cross center field. He might make a great play in, in the back or in the front, but he's never going from left center field to right center field. You know, that's, yeah. That's the beauty of playing with the Braves. And, and Andre was great center fielder, but I did not have that luxury. So late in the season, I'm wearing down. And uh, I talked to a George Foster, and he goes, hey, go to a heavier bat. And I go, what do you mean? I was like, he said, in your mind, you're tired. Everybody knows you're tired. You're playing down there. So what a heavier bat is going to do, it's going to reinforce in your mind to get ready on time. Because you can be up there with a 31-ounce bat, and if you're late, you're going to get jammed. You're not going to mm -hmm. be on time. Everything's right. going to break down. So when you have a heavier bat, it forces you to get ready earlier and forces you to get ready softer. So now you're just swinging with the hands and delivering the bat. And sure enough, I think I had nine home runs that September. You know, wow. just, just I went to a heavier bat. I went from, I want to say, 30, 33 ounces to 34 ounces or something like that. I went to a heavier bat. Yeah. Never would have guessed. Almost like reverse psychology. That's fascinating. Yeah, I love hey, you that. know, you mentioned that 30-30 year, and I know we talked about it at the top of the podcast. Uh, big moment for you there. And in five seasons in Florida, including that 30-30 year, and then once again, you're on the move, right? Flip to Colorado um, after having some really good seasons with Florida. Tell us about that trade uh, prior to walking in, into a room and meeting Mark Sweeney <laughs> when you're both members of the That was a trade where... Honestly, uh, I think my time with the Marlins was 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 okay. I had a, you know I had some big family issues there in, in 2001, and uh, I think maybe the change of scenery in 2003 was the best thing that could have happened to me. You know, there was some you know I had a, a son that was born prematurely and he passed away after a very short period of time. I think it was only 10 days that he was alive, and uh, having that going through a divorce at the same time, not at the same time, but afterward after that. Um, so 2001, 2002. It was it was kind of tough as far as trying to be, get have the clarity to play on the field and all of that. So right. honestly, I think 
you know, best thing that worked out for everybody was for me to leave Florida, you know, kind of got out of an environment, get to a new environment. And uh, the Marlins got a great player, Juan Pierre, um, who uh, was definitely what they needed at the time. They needed another speed guy on the top of the lineup with Louis Castillo. Um, so those guys kind of could just drive teams, drive teams crazy. And I went out and I actually got to be in the middle of the lineup where I had hitters around me, you know, for the Marlins, uh, the last couple of years, Cliff had gone to New York. Uh, Mike Lowell wasn't Mike Lowell yet. Derek Lee wasn't Derek Lee yet. Kevin Millar wasn't Kevin Millar yet. So during that time, I was hitting cleanup but I didn't have any protection, any consistent protection behind me. So it started becoming easier to pitch around. Uh, when I went to Colorado, you know, it worked out that the Marlins that then all of a sudden Derek Lee matures and becomes the hitter that he became. Michael Lowell gets better because the hitter that he becomes. Uh, so that, that part of the equation worked out for both. When I went to Colorado, then all of a sudden I'm in a lineup with Todd Helton and Larry Walker, you know? So it's like, I went from not really having any veteran protection for the last couple of years. I think Cliff Floyd left after 2000 to go with the Mets. Um, so I, from not having any protection uh, in the lineup to having Todd Helton hitting in front of me and Larry Walker hitting behind me. I mean, it was kind of a dream scenario for me because it was something, you know, I was always, you know, from my start with the Marlins, my rookie year, I was hitting cleanup. That doesn't really happen that often in the big leagues for a right-handed hitter to hit cleanup in the big leagues because there's so many right-handed pitchers and it's so much, so tough. Uh, so from when I got to Colorado to have a place where they were, they were forced to pitch to me, my numbers just jumped. Yeah, and you think about it too, Preston, you're going to Colorado and, and I'm glad you mentioned Todd Helton and Larry Walker, uh, two of the best left-handed hitters that I've ever seen other than a Tony Gwynn. And right. and that's to me that's high praise because I think Tony Gwynn's probably the best hitter I've ever seen. You all yeah. also put Barry Bonds in that. But you go to Colorado and you flourish, um, and there's reasons you flourish too, right? It's not just the thin air; it has everything to do with the player you expected to be. Um, and I got to watch that. And why I say this is that you resonated through that clubhouse because not only did you play well, but you love the game of baseball. Tell us why it all clicked for you in an all-star year in 2003 with the Colorado Rockies? I think it was a couple of factors. I think it was being away from South Florida and all the family situation that I had. I didn't have to stare that in the face every day. Uh, being in a new environment, um, you know, feeling like when you get traded, in essence, somebody wants you. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, the other team got rid of you, but somebody wants you. So I had a, you know, there were supportive staff there, coaches uh, really kind of, gelled with me and as far as the idea as far as what we were trying to do um you know and also I didn't have to worry about stealing his bases as much because they said look it's going to be we don't want you running as much you just focus on playing the defense and hitting and the rest will take care of itself so I didn't have to worry about you know generating runs as far as stealing bases that way um so I was able to focus on other parts of the game and uh, being in an, in an environment watching how uh Helton and Walker went about their bats watching how the environment itself played, you know, I had to learn the nuances of the stadium uh, and also understanding that it wasn't the same course field. That was the course field of 99, 2000, whatever, because now they had a the humidor there. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like, you know, you still had to square them up. I mean, I think if we remember correct, the last person to hit 40 there may have been Jeremy Burnett's. Right. I don't think anybody hit 40 since then. And I think it had been a couple of years before that since somebody had hit 40, you know, mm -hmm. those Galarraga Ellis Burks years. So yes. it was, I had to make sure in my mind, I knew I wasn't walking into that type of environment. I still had to square the ball up. I still had to hit it well. Yeah, there were some days where you catch a jet stream, it would jump out of there, but it wasn't. I wasn't going to walk in there and hit 50 just because I was in a new environment. Yeah. Um, so I think that mindset helped me kind of settle down and realize, 
It's not going to be cheap. You still have to earn it because even though the ball carries a little bit further, the gaps are bigger, the ballpark's bigger. Uh, but the biggest thing was having working my way into a situation because at first I was hitting fifth, but I had enough good at bats that all of a sudden now I'm fifth. And instead of being behind Helton and Walker, I'm between them. And the respect that Larry Walker had throughout the league made them pitch to me. So not only did I uh, strike out less, I walked more because then I was able to relax and not have to expand because I felt like, well, if I didn't do it, it was the next guy was going to do it. Yep. So I think all of that played into my evolution as a player is because now there was less responsibility on me. I just had to do my job. I didn't have to try to drive in those runs and go maybe an inch or two off the plate to try to get that sack fly because now Larry Walker's going to do it. I don't have to worry about that. So I didn't have to expand as much. I walked more. I struck out less. You know, the power and the numbers were there. You know, and so I felt like that was what happened that year. And it kind of all came together as a perfect storm. You make such a great point because I think so many people uh, that don't understand protection in a lineup, and you've mentioned it already, is so important. It's so important to evolve as a player, but also realize it's a team offense. It's not an individual offense. And, and I think you spoke volumes to that. Uh, you turned that into a, an all-star nod. Uh, man, that had to be special. You, you go with Todd Helton and also uh, your teammate Sean Chacon. Uh, what was that experience like to go to your first All-Star game? Take us into that locker room and seeing that jersey. Man, so that was always something I wanted for my dad. When I was a kid, like when all the, all the ballot voting would always come around. Like I'll, I'd always put it in, you know, vote for Mookie. I always put it in a ballot box and it never happened. Like my dad didn't get a chance to become an all-star because, of, you know, of the power. He wasn't a power hitter. And when you're an outfielder, power plays a part in whether you get yeah. to the all-star. Uh, so, you know, first it was like, well, our family made it to the all-star game. That's what it was like for me at first. The Wilsons have made an appearance at the all-star game. And then after that, I walk in. And uh, I'm just seeing like this collection of players that you're humbled to even be in the same room with. You know, you, you look around and you see, yeah, you walk in with Todd Helton. You see Barry Bonds over there. You know, you, you walk around and you're like, oh my goodness, all these people are here, these guys I watch that are in the major leagues and I actually get to do this. And now on top of it, one of my favorite managers ever, Dusty Baker is yeah. the manager. I always wanted to play for him. Like, I, I would have done anything to play for Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker and Bobby Cox were the two managers I always wanted to play for. Um, so get there, and he's the manager, and him and his toothpick and his wristbands, and it couldn't be more <laughs> surreal. And uh, he's like, all right, babe, we'll get you in there somewhere. All right, go have a good one. I'm like, that was his way of saying, you're not starting now, don't you? You're not, but I'm going to get you in there. Like, settle down. Like, you know, I know the numbers, but settle down. Okay. Well, take us in, take us into that at bat when you got that opportunity. What was it? What was it like? Uh, I, I go in there, and again, it's against the lefty. I think it was Mark Mulder. Yeah. Um, uh, first at bat, I single up the middle. I think it was a, either one or strike or two strikes, single up the middle, just, you know, just a nice clean single, nothing too big, but it got up because everybody knows when you go to an all-star game, you want to at least make contact. You at least want to hit the ball hard, but you really want to get a hit. You want to get that hit. So, you know, you're settled for, oh, I hit it hard. Did you see that? But what you really want is you want that hit. You want to say you got that one for whatever in the all-star game. So I ended up going one for two. I think my second at bat was a ground out or something like that. But I went one for two. And, uh, you know, the all-star ball, I got that. It's got the little emblem on it. Nice. You know, all-star game, you know, from the Chicago White Sox. It was their ballpark. We were the visiting team. Unfortunately, that was the year where uh, Gagne gave up the homer. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, he had, like, had not given up a blow and a save all season. And, you know, I know how easy he got me out. So I'm thinking this game's over. Like, like we're in. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, well, that was shocking. Yeah, and that's uh, – I think that might have been one of the first couple of years that the uh, – 
the, the game decided home field advantage in the All-Star game. Yeah, yeah. Eric Gagne is one of those guys that I, I can still see it in my sleep, that that visual of his glasses and his, yeah. his resemblance in that left field yeah. when he starts coming out of there. Uh, yeah. Absolutely hated that and hated facing him because he was absolutely filthy. So I understand that. Uh, another guy that I want to touch on, and because you're with the Colorado Rockies, you already mentioned him, Larry Walker, the Hall of Famer. Um, I've said this plenty of times, Preston. He's the most talented player I've ever been around and played with. And, and why I say that is there was nothing on the field he couldn't do. What was your impression? What was it like to be with Larry Walker? Walker was this guy who, he was a font of information, a font of knowledge, but you had to understand how to kind of coax it out of him. Mm-hmm. You know, because Larry was a guy where he loved, you know, he was a nice, easygoing guy, but some things came to him so naturally that he never thought about it. He was, a, in my mind, he was a baseball savant. Like he was one of those guys where he could wake up today and figure out how to get a knock. Not, not working out for months. Not a, He could get up today and figure out if you give him three at-bats, he's going to figure out either how to walk or get on base somehow. He's going to do it just because he's that good at it. Um, but yeah, you're right. He's one of the most talented guys I've, I've been in uniform with because he did everything. Not only did, would he give you a great at-bat, he was smart on the bases. I mean, he was a 250, 60 pound guy that ran a lot better than you ever imagined that he could, you know, before shoulder injury. I mean, really good arm, great arm out there, uh, power to all fields, played defense, was always aware of what was going on, knew the hitters, knew their tendencies, studied the zone as far as how the how the swing was reacting to the pitch. So I had I had more fun with him on defense, honestly, than I did in the offense because we were so much alike in the outfield as far as being prepared and wanting to know what that swing was or how this guy was looking on this day. Like we, we, even though we had the stats, we didn't let the stats dictate what we did if we saw something different on the field that day, because Mm -hmm. there could be a guy who's known to maybe pull the ball early or something like that, but we're looking at him. And for some reason, whether it's the background, he's not seeing the ball well, or he, like there was some reason that this guy is not the guy that we see on paper and we will play him according to that. We wouldn't play him to the paper. So I think that he like I love playing outfield with Larry because he always gave effort. There was never yeah. a time where in the center field there's a ball hitting the right center gap that I'm running for the ball and I see him staring at me. That never happened. There was always all out effort from Larry. So uh, I not only did I appreciate uh, what he did, I was in awe of what he did because he made it look easy. Yeah, you think about awe, and I, I've told Mike some of these stories too. Being around Larry, Larry, Larry had fun with the game. He had like a. Uh, like a little kid mentality when everything wasn't just competition. Right. Uh, because you're right, he was a baseball savant, but he also did things naturally. And uh, I remember a story in the locker room. He's sitting he's sitting in another locker, mid middle of this big, huge locker room in Colorado. And he has a ball in his hand. And uh, for our listeners, you remember those water fountains? We had a water fountain. I remember in, this story. <laughs> we, had a, <laughs> we had a water fountain in our, in our locker room. And he looks at me and says, and there was four or five, and you were probably one of the group. And he says, do you think I can hit that button that you pushed down to have the water come out? And I said, what? And he he goes, that button, I bet you I can hit it. And he launches this ball, and it's probably 30 feet, hits the the bubbler, and water speed spots out. And we're all going, what? What are you talking about? Well, Larry Walker was that guy. I told yeah. I told Mike another one in in the outfield. We're taking outfield drills in spring training, and he says, "See that light post? You know, thirty feet behind the the guy hitting the fungos to us." He goes, "I'm going to hit that," and it looked like literally like six inches wide yeah. where we were in the outfield. He launches it, 
hits it. And he, it, it's, he had the freakish ability that made us laugh. It made us yeah. enjoy the game. And he had uh, that aloofness in the locker room, especially. Do you have any special stories with, uh, you know, about Larry that you yeah. can share with us? He would, he would have been the most amazing TikTok video guy if he played to a TikTok age. <laughs> all the things he did were like, like crazy tricks. I remember one when he was sitting in the locker room and he goes, I'm going to hit it off the wall and then it's going to hit that wall and it's going to go in the trash can. <laughs> Come on, ball. Really? And he goes, look at that. Boop, 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 boop. Right? I'm like, great, great. Like, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it, there was a bunch of times where he would just sit there and you go, this is not normal. Like, yeah. like, and he would do it with such ease. Like, there was no stress about it. He'd be sitting there just like this. Hey, Chris, think I could, uh, they could throw it off the wall there, make it hit that wall, and then go in that trash can. They could do that. <laughs> it reminds me, it sounds like the, like the Michael Jordan and Larry Bird McDonald's commercials from right. years ago, right? right? In the wall, uh, off the wall, in through the car window, right? Off the tower, into the basket, the whole nine yards. Is there a story, Preston, that you have from your time, uh, either in Colorado or just in the big leagues in general, where you think, this is something that they make movies out of? Not not necessarily a signature baseball moment, but something like you're talking about, a behind-the-scenes, I'm living a life of Riley, really. A life most people will never even remotely understand. Okay, well, now we had this whole story that we're building up about my career to now, you know, getting drafted by the Mets. My dad was a Mets player, playing in Shea Stadium, going out there, um, you know, playing on in center field in Shea Stadium and just being in awe of all of that. The same place where I used to play these father-son games. Then I end up fast forward through my career. I get to play in Colorado. I play in RFK where um, Frank Howard, who was one of my dad's early coaches, used to play. And I'm playing in that stadium and I'm like, well, Frank Howard played here too. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. so all of these, all of these stages, I'm like revamping parts of my life from a, as, as a kid. And I'm like reliving these moments, but as a big leaguer. So I get to the big leagues and the Cardinals was one of the teams my dad always wanted to play for because of their style. He, he loved that running style of game. Yeah. And we end up making it to the world series. And not only do we win the world series, we win the world series 20 years to the exact date over my father won the World Series with the Mets. Wow. Now, wow. you can't make a movie out of that. Just put your pen and paper down. Hundred <laughs> percent. I had no idea. I did not realize that. Did you mark yes. it 20 no. years to the date? No. 20 days to the date, yes. That is unbelievable. You know what? When we think about that team, um, and I've heard interviews you've done before about how special you thought that club was. And for a lot of our listeners, myself included as a fan, you hear that phrase, the cardinal way, the cardinal way. And Mark played in the organization with the Cardinals. Obviously, you were part of that World Series team in 06. I, I don't think I've ever really wrapped my brain around that. So from the inside out, Press, what does that mean? It's really simple. It's, it's, not, it's not if you're going to do your job, you expect to do your job. It doesn't matter how you're going to do it. You're responsible for what you need to do. That's all there is to it. You have to be accountable. And that locker room ran off that. That locker room was fueled of accountability. That's all it was. So when you talk about the Cardinals way, it's people expect you to do your job because the one thing that I admired about the Cardinals when I got there is I realized they get players that are the players they want and they don't try to get those players and turn them into the player that they hope for. They get the player that they want. They get the player that brings that thing that they want or that they need. They don't try to change them. When they got there, they were like, I talked to Hal McCray. I talked to Tony. He was like, hey, we want you to be a slugger. You know, we don't want you out there trying to figure out how to hit 300. We want you to go out there and slug. We want you to get something to drive it. We need that right now. So we'll take the bad at-bats that come along with that, but we want you to be a slugger. What happens? I had nine home runs and about 100 at-bats. Hmm. Help them get to the World Series. So it's like, 
when you talk about the Cardinal way, number one is pick players that do already what you want them to do. And number two, expect them to do it. And number three, have them be responsible for doing it. Hmm. You know, and one of the, one of the biggest moments for me, because they knew how I worked like through my batting practice and all of that was I, I got the butt sign in the world series and I got it down because they knew that I took my butt seriously, seriously doing BP my whole career. They knew that. They knew that when I was with them every day, when I'm doing my butts, I'm taking my time. I'm getting it right. I'm getting a bat at the right. I'm not just going through the motions. So in the big leagues, in the world series, when they needed a run to get over in a big game, they gave me the butt sign. I got it down to run scores. So there are things that the Cardinal way you can think it's really all about accountability. Hmm. You have a job to do. You're expected to do it. Now, we're not going to ask you to do something that's outside of your capabilities, but we know what you're capable of doing it. So when you get up there, do it. That's Preston, the cardinal I, way. Preston, I, I love that because I, I, I feel the exact same way. And, and it was a, a different time. And I, I, I was there in 95 and 96 when Tony just got there. Tony LaRusso, the manager, the Hall of Fame manager that's still managing with the Chicago White Sox now. Um, he put you in positions to succeed. He also put you in a position where he communicated with you and said, Preston Wilson, I want you to be the best version of yourself, not anyone else. And you, as you said, you had nine home runs. You, 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 you went off in that situation. But take us through that journey to the World Series because I don't think people and listeners understand when you go to the playoffs, it's a different level. And you're still always focused on winning that World Series championship, putting that ring around your finger, celebrating with your teammates. Take us through that journey and what meant that what meant so much to you going through that World Series championship. Well, the, the first thing was when you play your whole career, never had gotten to uh, the World Series. You, in your mind, you think you know what it's going to be, and you're absolutely wrong. There's no, there's nothing that can prepare you for how everything amplifies, how everything is so much more exaggerated. There's nothing that can prepare you for that. You can think your way into saying that you're ready, but you're not ready because number one, everything, every pitch is so important. During the season, yes, it's a big deal, but you've never been into the playoffs to realize that every pitch is really live or die. And you have those emotions on every pitch where you, (gasps) every pitch, so you go, you do that for nine innings. When you get home, you are worn out. There's no thinking about going to grab something to eat with the fellas. You are worn out. You're going home. So first I had to understand that. I had to understand that the environment, the intensity was so much more. And then you have to understand as a hitter that when the games are close and intensity is there, you have to slow everything down because it can pass by in a minute. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the biggest things, Jim Edmonds, I guess because of his Angels days going to the playoffs, he told me, slow it down. If you feel like you get there and your first at bat went quickly, your next at bat, if you got to step out, take a deep breath, I don't fake something in your eye to uh, slow everything down because the last thing you want is to have that game in and you have four bats and you can't remember any of them because you were just so excited mentally, even though you tried to tell yourself you weren't, that you were just so amped up that it's gone. So that was just really trying to slow it down, trying to make sure not only was I watching things that I were doing, but watching the other players. And that helps slow you down. When you watch other players, when you watch things with them and you can recognize them and be like, wow, that at bat went really quickly for them. Like, you know, maybe that's what, maybe that's what uh, Jim's talking about. I need to slow that down. And uh, Jim just being prepared, realizing that everybody's tired, but everybody's going to use that energy from the game to still perform. So you take nothing for granted. 
You're going to go out there and you still got to focus like, like think about this guy, like he's fresh in April on that mound. You respect everybody, even the guy that, you know, because now once you get to the World Series, you play in a different league. Even the guy whose numbers during the season may not have been that good. There's a reason why he's on the team right now. He must be hot. There's some reason why. So you respect everyone. You respect everyone who's on the team at the time. And you try to find a way to give yourself the best at bat possible. You try to find a way to make sure that you're understanding defensively where you need to be thinking ahead, uh, making sure you understand what's going on on the scoreboard, know where you need to throw the cutoff ball. Uh, all of those things are just being prepared beforehand because the last thing you want is to be that guy in the World Series where something surprised you that you were not ready for. So my whole mindset throughout the World Series was be ready, understand what's going on on the scoreboard, respect everybody who's in the game, whether they're at the plate, on the mound, no matter what, do not let anything surprise you. And then when you get down to it and you actually win the, win the game, you win the World Series, then that's a whole nother story. Now it's time to let that go and enjoy every moment that you put in this work with these guys because nobody really knows unless you're on a baseball team how much time you spend together, how yep. much work goes into it. There's work that people never see. There's work that in that cage that nobody ever imagined that happens at two o'clock and the game's not until seven o'clock. There's guys who are barely making it into the stadium because their body's messed up and they're starting treatment at noon just so they can play at twelve at right. uh, one seven o'clock. Those are things people don't know. So those are things that bind you all together because not only are you appreciative of the performance, but you respect them for all the work that they put in to make that World Series possible, not just to get there, but to win it collectively and then to be able to hold that trophy, man. Nothing like it. Preston, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it takes you in as, as like a little kid moment too. Um, take us on that last out and you guys are World Series champions. What was your favorite story celebrating? Yes, you're grabbing the trophy, but there's got to be one that sticks out in your mind. There is. Believe it or not, it's had some great friends on team. Gary Bennett. Um, you know, you know, GB. Oh, I love <laughs> Gary him. Bennett. Um, so to, so, so uh, to Gucci. Um, and I was all the way to left field. So I had, a, I had a long run. So I'm running for left field. I'm like running and windmilling my arms and yelling and screaming. And then I run out of breath and I'm yelling and screaming again. <laughs> so by, by the time I get there, you know, I, I see so and I'm hugging so and I see Gary Bennett, who we played on other teams before. Like we were with the Rockies together, with yep. the Nationals together. So to play with him on the third team and win the World Series with him, still one of my dearest friends ever, man. Give him a big old hug. Mm -hmm. And then you're in that pile and then all of a sudden you realize like confetti's falling and you're the world champion and all this stuff that you went to actually meant something. And that year we weren't even supposed to be there. Like we got in as a wild card team. We were struggling off and on because of injuries we had throughout the season. I got there late. Uh, you know, uh, there were guys who weren't them normals, who weren't their normal selves throughout the year. And then all of a sudden late in the year, the Cardinals became the Cardinals that everybody thought they were going to be. And we just went on this run. So to have that kind of fuel us through the world series and see that trophy and, you know, just to shake everybody's hand and to see my mom, see my girlfriend at the time, you know, it just, it was, it was a very special moment that is unique unto itself. Everyone knows the Cardinal fans are special. What was that parade like for you? It was ridiculous. I mean, we're riding down the road, seeing parking garages, four or five stories high people, people and I mean, it's stacked. I think they said it was like one point something million people that made it to that parade. It was bigger than the, the you know, any, the Rams parade when they won it. Uh, bigger than the hockey in St. Louis, like it was, it was the biggest parade so far there. Uh, uh, it was amazing. Yeah, ba baseball fans in St. Louis, they represent, they come out and they show love. You know what's cool too is you work in this little vacuum, so to speak. In that, 
on a good night, you're playing in front of 50,000 people. And obviously, you're not aware of all the millions who may be watching on television. But then when you do have that parade, now you see the tentacles that the win has had through the community. People who are maybe fringe fans. Get, you galvanize a city. And when people are struggling in their personal lives, they have something like a World Series win to shelf their own distresses for at least a short bit. Does it ever hit you at some point, even after the fact, the level to which you're able to affect the community with a win like you had in 06? It does. Um, and it's, 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 uh, it's something that you, you, you have to respect it. Because when you look at where the Cardinals are situated, they actually draw from five states around there, around Missouri. They draw from five states. So you'll have an Indiana. You'll, you'll, you know, you'll have people from other states that are just neighboring states that come to, uh, to Missouri to watch the Cardinals play. And when you realize how, how, how wide the breadth of that is, it, it's really kind of awe-inspiring to understand that you know, there's some fan that's not even in your same state that's really just sitting there watching TV because that's part of life that brings them joy. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm glad I'm glad I learned to play the way that I played. I played all out. I played hard every day. You know, um, I, there was there's never a chance, never a time where, I, you know, I can remember getting taken off the field for loafing or not playing or giving it all I have, you know. Um, so I, I think just knowing that feels like you want to make sure that you give those fans what they came to see. And uh, I took, I took that with me throughout my whole career. Um, even when at the end of my career where I wasn't as healthy as I could have been uh, probably sometimes to my own detriment, you know, played a little bit too hard, but to know that those fans are out there and that gives them something that gives them something to be proud of or happy about means a lot to me. And it really shows up where just kind of in everyday life, every now and then I might be doing an autograph signing or something somewhere, or I'm walking someplace or even online, you know, I'm on Twitter now at Preston Wilson 44, you'll see people come in and out and, you know, Hey man, I really appreciate the way you played, you know, watched you out there, you know, all of those things mean a lot. So yeah. Um, the fans are definitely always in that equation when it comes to, when you think about the totality of baseball and your career. Yeah, I appreciated you too. The way you played the game um, as a teammate, uh, it, it's an easy, um, uh, listen, uh, we haven't seen each other a lot, but that's an easy hug uh, because oh, yeah. I, I just absolutely loved the way you presented yourself, the way you thought team first. And also, uh, Preston, you mentioned you, you went through injuries. Uh, you played hurt. I mean, and there's there's a lot of worth to that in that locker room and understanding it too. But you go through your career uh, you end up May, May 5th, 2007 was your last appearance in the big leagues with the Cardinals. What's next for you? I, I know you've dabbled into TV. You've done a lot of different things. Uh, what's Preston Wilson doing these, these days? Well, right now I'm just dead. You know, I, I actually, uh, I was doing television for, I think like five or six years um, between, you know, a couple of different networks. And uh, it got to a point where I wanted to be home. My daughter was 16 and uh, there were some things that I needed to be around for. You know, she's going to graduate in a year plus, so I wanted to be around more. So I kind of mm -hmm. shut everything down. And, uh, you know, now that she's off now, so congratulations to her. She's going to Tulane. Awesome. Uh, off, to a, off to a great collegiate career. Uh, and I got a little one who's six, who now, so somehow, I, you know, I got one that's going off to college and one that's going into first grade now. I'm with brilliant, you, buddy. By the way. Just brilliant, by the way. <laughs> way to do it, man. <laughs> no, but, I, no, but honestly, now I feel like... Um, you know, what's down with that's going and, you know, she's 
school is kind of easy for her now. So I'm not worried about that. So I'm actually looking back to get back into broadcasting. So hopefully one day I'll see you walking in the hallway of a media lounge and we'll, you know, have our little press badges on or whatever, a media right. badge and we'll, we'll say what's up. You know? I would, I would <laughs> love that moment. Hopefully you'll see me on TV again. I would <laughs> love that. Preston, man, thank you so much for the time. We really do no appreciate problem. it. Oh, that was awesome. Thank you guys for having me. You got it. Preston Wilson, former first-round pick of the Mets, 10 years in the big leagues with six different clubs, makes an all-star team, has a 30-30 year, and the cherry on top, a World Series champ with the 2006 St. Louis Cardinals. Well, folks, thanks for checking out Major League Beginnings presented by Bet Online. And if you had as much fun as we did, please go ahead, hit the subscribe button anywhere you usually download your podcast from. You pick the platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, whatever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.